So today I, I conclude my uh, Words That Work message series, and with, with your help, with um, many of your suggestions this past week, um, what was really interesting is I received, I think, 20 or 25 individual suggestions, none of them duplicating any other one. There are a lot of common themes. You know, we're a diverse spiritual community. That kind of makes sense. And so I was initially at a loss to know exactly which one to pick, because I thought the one that had the most numbers behind it would be, well, just obviously sort of suggest itself, uh, plurality rules. Um, but ultimately, the decision was made for me. It was made, uh, it was made by a higher authority. It was made by Oprah. <laughs> you see what happened? Actually, within the 24 hours uh, that I sort of opened the window to get your suggestions in earlier this week, um, in that same time period, three folks in the congregation sent me Oprah's interview with Thich Nhat Hanh. Fascinating interview. Really, really good and in-depth. And so I figured, that'll do it. We're going to go with the Thich Nhat Hanh quote that was suggested, the quote that we use week after week after week here. And so it, they are words that work, words that we work with, words that work for us as we grow and deepen our spiritual lives here together. And actually, I received an additional confirmation after the fact. Uh, Tuesday night, I was in one of our small groups, and one of the people shared there that they were telling someone about the Wellsprings experience. And, you know, one of the reasons we have this kind of repetition in our service these words from Thich Nhat Hanh, is that, you know, it gives us something to form an identity about, that, you know, spiritual practice and meditation is something very important to our cultivation of spiritual community here. And they were sharing it with this person and said, uh, you know, if we want to ever enter heaven on earth, we need one conscious step. And by the way, that take is something I have added in completely uh, unknown to me. That's not the right original quote. So we'll take the take out in weeks to come in the meditation. But she was saying this, and then her daughter chimed in, and one conscious breath. <laughs> she ended it. Perfectly, and, and so actually I think that, that's exactly why these words are perfect to end this series with. Words that work, spiritual sayings, practices, ways of being together, they should be memorable, they should be accessible, and they should be applicable to all people, young or old, new to Wellsprings, or around since the beginning. So I love these words, and I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about them today. There is a single word in this quote. If we want to enter heaven on earth, we need only one conscious step and one conscious breath. A single word that's the most important. There are other powerful words in there. There's other necessary words in there. There's one word that's the most important. And it's this one, which is one. That's the word that makes the meaning of all the other words come to life in this particular set of words that work. I wanted to share with you that although I've known these words, probably since the early 90s was the first time I read them, I only came to experience and understand the true meaning of these words in summer 2003. It was a time in my life that actually wasn't really a happy time that much at all. I was midway between uh, July 2003, midway between the uh, end Necessary end, but still not terribly happy. End of my first marriage and six months away from meeting Teresa, who's now my wife. And it was a necessarily lonely summer for me in South Florida, which actually isn't that hard to do. Because the thing you find out when you live in South Florida is that between the months of, let's say, oh, November and April, everyone wants to come see you. No one wants to come see you in July. Their questions are all, why aren't you coming to see us? Why are you still down there? Well, it's my home. It was my home at the time. And so what I did, one of the healthy choices I made, and actually I made a lot of unhealthy choices that time in my life, but one of the healthy choices I made is that this 
time period of July 2003 was the first time in my life that I ever logged 100 miles running. The first time in my life, I, I did a few other months, but this is the first month of my life that I ever logged over 100 miles on the road. And the way that my training sort of worked during the week was that I'd go out smaller runs, three, four, sometimes five miles, several times during the week, and that the longer run would be reserved for Friday or Saturday nights, 9, 10, 11, sometimes even 12 miles. And I say night because this is July in South Florida. You want to run while the sun is still out, you will die. It's just not a smart thing to do. And so I would go out after the summer to come down, and it still would be, you know, 78, 80, 85 degrees, and the humidity would still be above 90, but at least the sun was down. So I'd go out sort of under cover of darkness and run on what they call the boardwalk in Hollywood, Florida, where I live. Now, don't get the image of the boardwalk like, you know, Jersey boardwalks. This is a slab of concrete that extends on for about 10 miles. That's what the boardwalk is in Hollywood, Florida. But there is a portion of it that has a lot of businesses and bars and restaurants and a lot of sort of social life teeming around it. And so for about three or four miles of my run, it would take me past, on my longer runs, this place where there was a lot of life, or a lot of people at the very least. And then for the last three, four miles of my run, the boardwalk would veer off into a place of mangrove trees, not that far from the water, but very, very silent, very quiet. And I've never been a particularly fast runner, especially on distance runs. My runs very often averaged about, you know, 10-minute miles. And so in these runs, I would very often be entirely on my own, entirely solitary for 30, 40, sometimes 50 minutes, not seeing another person. Now, as I described this time in my life, it was a lonely time. It was an isolating time, and so I chose to go on long-distance runs to be, I suppose, even more isolated. And sometimes, sometimes on those runs, it was perfectly, uh, perfectly what I needed it to be. I was able to clear my head, open my heart a little bit. But sometimes on those long runs, and I'm grateful for that as well, too, I met the parts of myself that I didn't particularly like very much, which is to say the fearful side, the anxious side, the side that wondered, what the hell am I doing out here on my own running? Because, you know, maybe that thing that's, you know, shaking the mangrove swamp trees over there, maybe that's one of those stray gators that's come over from the, uh, from the greater Everglades is going to bite my leg off. And, you know, this is what happens in my mind from time to time. Maybe, maybe I thought, you know, in a way that I knew was um, less silly, um, but still very fear-based, was that when I was out on these long runs, 30, 40, 50 minutes by myself, Perhaps there was inside of me, as there was inside of my mother, ticking like a time bomb, an undiagnosed health problem that led to her sudden death. Maybe there was the same thing in me. And so I had these images of myself just sort of falling and collapsing, and well, who would be there to find me? Who would be there to resuscitate me? And when I would be in the midst of one of these runs, and the thoughts would be racing, and the pulse is quickening and the muscles are aching now because they're not getting the air because the air is like, you know, staying all up here because I'm starting to get very, very anxious and there's that, you know, the pain that I already have in my knees whenever I go out running, that just gets a little bit more intense and I focus on it a little bit more. And then I think, well, I'm miles from home and I guess I could walk the rest of the way there, but, you know, we're talking then hours for me to get home if I walk the way back. And no one's around. And this run, which I set out to, to improve my life, becomes a slog becomes a chore, becomes, you know, through gritted teeth. Just let me get through this so I can get home. And it's all tightness and fear and worry. And I think of that cliche, you know, the 
journey of a million miles start with just one step? Then I thought of these words. One conscious step. One conscious breath. One conscious step, one conscious breath. Feel the sweat of this 80-degree night just washing over my body. One conscious step, one conscious breath. Start, start to slow down. Slow down the pace, slow down the pulse. One conscious step, one conscious breath. The trees are moving not because of stray gators, but because of the wind. The same wind, the same spirit that animates my life that animates my lungs, that gives me what I need. One conscious step, one conscious breath. I don't need to fear what is there. One conscious step, one conscious breath. I hear the waves in the distance hitting the shoreline, and I think of those great words from the Caribbean poet Derek Walcott. The sea is a place that is soothing in its unrest. My life is not restful, but I can be soothed. I can be soothing. One conscious step, one conscious breath, even with all this churn that's going on inside of me, even with my legs churning forward, I hear the movements of the sea and I feel its constancy. One conscious step, one conscious breath, I look up and I see the blanket of stars overneath and I follow them off to the horizon, the place where the ocean disappears and the sky disappears and they just meet the horizon and head off someplace beyond into eternity and I know I am covered by sky and covered by ocean and washed by it and held by earth, heaven here and heaven now. One conscious step, one conscious breath. I make the turn back on the boardwalk, back towards civilization. I see the lights of the boardwalk still many miles in the distance. I cannot hear them yet, but I know there are people there. I know I am still in the dark, but one conscious step, one conscious breath. I'm not alone. One conscious step, one conscious breath. This is enough. I have calmed down. I know what I need that will get me home. One conscious step and one conscious breath at a time. In the interview with Oprah, Thich Nhat Hanh, he talks about, with not exactly these words, but almost identically these words, what he means, what forms the core of his spiritual philosophy and approach to the religious life. He says to Oprah, he says, if you are fully present, you need only make a step or take a breath in order to enter the kingdom of God. Once you have the kingdom, you don't need to run after objects of your craving, like power or fame or sensual pleasure or so on. Peace is possible. Happiness is possible. And this practice is simple enough for anyone to do. Now, I remember when I first heard these words in the early 90s, and I thought, and this reflects obviously much more of me than it does these words, you know, if heaven on earth could be created all around us, you know, would, would I even be recognizable to myself? You know, would I be so blissed out by just seeing heaven on earth all around me that somehow I'd lose myself, and I didn't want to lose the self that I thought I was back then. I was too attached to it. 
And when in fact I'd be so blissed out by seeing heaven on earth that I would become blind to the people for whom it was not heaven on earth but hell on earth because of their sufferings. But I'd be turning a blind eye towards those who suffer to open an eye towards what I conceived heaven to be. Now Thich Nhat Hanh answers this, the Zen Buddhist monk. He answers this in the interview. He was exiled by the threat of force for 39 years from his home country of Vietnam. 39 years as old as I am right now, he was told, you cannot return to your home. You cannot return to your family. You cannot return to your Sangha, your beloved community. You cannot return. He could not return because Thich Nhat Hanh's ministry, Thich Nhat Hanh's spirituality, is all about not just the cultivation of his own experience of heaven, but wishing to share that and helping others to cultivate it for themselves as well, too. You must remember that Thich Nhat Hanh was nominated by his friend and partner in justice and compassion, Martin Luther King Jr. He was nominated for the 1967 Nobel Peace Prize. This is not a man for whom it was all just about his own experience of heaven. And so it wasn't about turning a blind eye or turning away from the sufferings of the world. It was about opening back up to him in a deeper way. And it also wasn't about shutting himself off or down when he experienced those difficult, afflictive emotions. I always love when we hear from a holy man or a holy woman that they haven't stopped being less human than us. They've become fully human. They understand what it is to struggle. And so Oprah asks him about what the experience of his exile was like, how painful that was to him. And he's honest. He is open. He says, I was angry. I was worried. I was hurt. I was sad. And... This practice of mindfulness, one conscious step, one conscious breath, helped me recognize that. In the first year, I dreamed almost every night of going home. I was climbing a beautiful hill, very green, very happily, and suddenly I woke up and I found that I was in exile. So my practice was to get in touch with the trees, the birds, the flowers, the children, the people in the West and make where I was my community. And because of that practice, I found home outside of home. One year later, when I had found home outside of home, my dreams stopped. Far from the blind eye, it's the open heart that he is talking about, the open spirit, the open mind. He does not relish his exile, but he accepts it as the fact there and then of his life. It hurts him. He suffers grief and loss as any of us would if we were in a similar circumstance. The difference between how some of us might approach it and how he did is that he feels it. He does not deny it. He does not run from it. He does not flee from it. He faces it because it is the truth of his life. See, when we flee from those afflictive emotions, those difficult emotions, those things that make us feel as if they are so powerful and so big that they will overwhelm us, that we do not trust our spiritual reserve, the size and shape and wonder of our own hearts, that there might be something bigger in us than fear, than loss, than grief. This fear becomes very corrosive because the fear becomes defensiveness and the defensiveness becomes armor and armor is used for offense and life becomes a war. 
a pitched battle in which we are fighting ourselves and fighting other people. And the other name for war is, of course, scorched earth. Scourge, scorched earth cannot be heaven on earth. But scorched earth is very often hell on earth. And going back to the spiritual master's words here, when he awoke to his exile, he also could get in touch with who he actually was and where he actually was. One conscious step, one conscious breath, and his exile could end. He could experience the home beyond home. I think what he's saying here is that heaven, however we might imagine it or think of it or conceive it, is not some static place and not some static way of being. It is the capacity for fully awakened being. Not a place, but a state. This state of heavenliness recognizes heaven in our midst and also commits our hands and opens our hearts so that we might cultivate the heaven that is here in our midst for ourselves and for others. Because truly heaven cannot be just for ourselves alone. I'm reminded in this quote, this one conscious step, this one conscious breath of one of my favorite prayers from the Christian tradition, the Lord's Prayer. Those of you who grew up Catholic know it as the quote unquote, our father. It opens with, you know, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It talks about forgiveness and granting forgiveness and receiving forgiveness and encouraging us to find those ways beyond the temptations that would do our souls, our bodies harm and into that deeper, fuller life within us. And then the most key line in the entire prayer, so resonant with these words. Give us this day our daily bread. For the people who wrote this prayer, starvation was a fact of life. The ancient Near East was a place at times of tremendous deprivation. And so you might think, anxiously, we could understand someone saying this prayer, Lord, give me the bread I need. Give me all the bread I need. Because who, when facing hunger, does not want that? But listen to the prayer. Twice they use the same word. Give us this day our daily bread. One conscious step. One conscious breath. One day, this day, as the recovery movement says, one day at a time. The reason the prayer is this way, the reason this quote is this way, is because both traditions are inviting us find out what real satisfaction is in the midst of your life. Uncover the conditions that give rise to jealousy, greed, envy, hoarding, malice, resentments. Give us this day our daily bread. The most we can hold, it's this day. I don't know if any of you have ever seen uh, Hoarders, that program that's on the Discovery uh, Network. Um, it's, it is a challenging, scary um, show. It's about people who literally do not uh, know or can decide or can't figure out what is enough for them. And so they just gather and gather and gather and gather. And it's not just like, you know, the way my desk looks, which, you know, sort of things pile up. No, it's for people who just, for some reason, probably because of various kinds of mental illness, just have to gather so much 
There is no such thing as daily bread for them. It's just all at once and lost in the fog of not what they own, but what ends up owning them. But beyond these people, people who hoard, who are deserving of compassion, it's a larger question for our culture. It's a larger question for our culture, what is enough? I think as a culture, we're all struggling with this right now, and we should struggle with this question right now. Tonight's the Oscars. I'm going to watch the Oscars. I love movies. Those of you around know I love to preach about movies all throughout the summer. I just think it is incredibly lame that there used to be five nominations for Best Picture, and there's ten now. Come on. Five. Five in every category. Doubling it is just lame. There have been double the amount of movies made, and trust me, there have not been double the amount of quality movies made. It's just an attempt to get people to go to the movies more often. Reduce it to five. Let's get back in the bag. Come on. So anyway, that aside... Do you know that the Oscar swag, you know, the, the, the giveaways, you know, the swag, and very often it's in bags. I don't know whether it's in particular bags this year. This Oscar swag this year has been estimated to be worth $85,000. That is more than the median income of the household of households in Chester County, which, by the way, is the 24th richest county in all of America. I saw it on Forbes.com yesterday. So they're giving away in one night $85,000 in stuff. <laughs> now, I don't like to be too judgmental, but you know, we're wondering about the Wall Street bonuses, all this excess, all this excess, all this excess that we try to swim through. And indeed, it's all part of our culture. I just don't want to blame a certain segment. It's, it's all of us. We're all involved in this, whether we made good choices or unwise choices. You know, the, the, the current trouble economically that we're in is a lot of the result of actually the, the complete lack of one conscious step, one conscious breath. Because if you think about a bubble, a bubble just grows and grows and grows and grows until it explodes or pops. It is not about breathing in and breathing out. Taking and giving. Balanced living. Finally, I believe, and not just believe, but my experience of heaven has been in the here or in whatever hereafter, that heaven is not a place, but a state of being where this one simple thing is true and profoundly true. Heaven is where enough is enough. Heaven is where one conscious step and one conscious breath is enough. And we don't have to hoard and we don't have to clutch and we don't have to say, I'm mine. Heaven is where we are no longer fed up, but simply just fed. And it is enough. Those of you who have been around for a while know that I like to use a certain practice not originally intended for this, but the Hebrew word is dainu. From the Seder. And if you've ever been to a Seder at Passover, Dainu, which literally is translated as, it is sufficient. It is enough. Now, I think that's true of here and whatever in the hereafter. I love that Emily Dickinson, who herself, the poet, a traditional Christian thinker, rather orthodox, said and wrote these words in a poem Who has not found the heaven below will fail of the heaven above. 
God's residence is next to mine. The furniture is love. If we have the experience of knowing enough and being enough, then we also create space for others to be enough as well. That perhaps is the deepest, darkest fear when we don't have enough, that maybe we're not enough. Just, you know, we are so completely lacking that we in and of ourselves are just not enough. It's a horrible judgment to feel against oneself, especially when we're the ones making the accusation. But to feel enough within ourselves naturally draws us out into the lives of others, knowing that they are enough as well. We leave room for other beings. I love the old story, the old allegory from the Hasidic tradition of the difference between heaven and hell. It said that one night a great rabbi had a dream and was taken by a guide who said, I will show you heaven and hell. And first they go to hell. And it's a room in which people are sitting around a fire. And on the fire there is a big pot of wonderful stew soup just Boiling and and smelling just absolutely incredible. But all the people seated around this bowl are in tears. And they are starving. And they are so dreadfully unhappy. See, the problem is that each of them has very, very long spoons. Spoons that they cannot grasp because they're so thin towards where the actual spoon is. They have to grasp up at the handle, but it's so long that they cannot dip into the soup to feed themselves. And so they are starving. And not just starving in body, but starving in spirit. And the guide says to the rabbi, that is hell, and now I will show you heaven. And it is the same exact room with the same exact fire and the same exact soup, except everyone is happy. Everyone is well fed. Everyone has enough. And everyone is conversing and laughing and partaking and having joy in each other's presence. And the guide says to the great rabbi, you see the difference. They have learned to feed each other. They could not feed themselves. And so they started feeding each other. Heaven on earth. Wherever. The one conscious step, the one conscious breath is to be experienced knowing that fullness of being. To be fed and to be willing to feed others. It is to know the deepest experience of that great word, soul food. To be filled up with not all the things, but with the right things. To be filled up and say, enough. Today, I will walk one step at a time. I will breathe one breath at a time into tomorrow. And then I will face it as well too. One bite, one step, one breath at a time. This is to know enough. This is to be enough. And this is to know heaven. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, may we have our daily bread this day. 
May we enjoy and partake and share and be nourished. May we open all our eyes and all of our being to those in our midst who suffer and struggle. Who because of their perception or because of their reality feel that their daily bread is not enough. May we walk together in community and in life one step at a time knowing that is when we lose our breath it is when the fear overcomes us when we lose touch with the glorious expansiveness of this present moment that we can lose ourselves so may all of us here today commit commit to just one conscious step and one conscious breath and then the next one and the next one and the next one Amen.